this is uh, This is Joe Cole. This is Ruben off the cheek, and you're listening to the London, the London is Blue podcast. podcast. All right, welcome back to another episode of London is Blue podcast. As always, your host Brandon. You know it. It's the Matt Law special. Matt is back, and boy, uh, some good stuff to talk about. Per usual, just kind of state of state with Chelsea, right, Matt? Yeah, it's always stuff going on with Chelsea, isn't it? Always, day by day, week by week, always things happening. So the good news is it it gives you a stable job and uh, us plenty to talk about. <laughs> so exactly. uh, we'll be doing doing all of that. But I mean, you know, no sense in in waiting um, the weekend, right? West Ham uh, away, um, you know, amazing start to the match, right? Slowed down at halftime. Obviously conceded the goal. Uh, second half just didn't really pick up. Maybe a little bit with the substitutions in the second half. Obviously, Mason Connor coming in um, specifically to probably inject that energy into it. Uh, but then, like, we got lucky with offsides call where we conceded late. And then we got unlucky with the what seems like a very obvious handball on Suchek at the very end. But then again, then there's the conversation of Potter, which, you know, you tweeted about with Joe Cole and Rio Ferdinand yeah. talking about. We talked about it on the pod. So anyways, West Ham between lineup, back four, you know, the the great start, the the up and down throughout the match. You know, how did you live it? Yeah, I mean, I thought it was quite, look, I thought Chelsea were excellent the first 20 minutes, um, which I think pretty much everybody thought. Um, but then I just found it a sleepy game after that. I mean, I tweeted... In the UK, it was a 12.30 kickoff. I hate the early kickoff. I mean, they're good from a lifestyle point of view because, you know, get out the house early, get home early, great. Still can have a night out and stuff like that. But in terms of the football and the atmosphere, I always find them so flat. And I actually looked it up and that the goals rate of the early kickoff is significantly down on all of the other kickoff times across weekends. Um, so it's not just, it's not just my, sort of pie in the sky theory there's something to it that these games, games are sleeping it was a sleepy game uh i felt the second half nothing really happened until right at the end really and i didn't think chelsea were lucky with the two set offside goal because it was clearly i mean it was clearly offside i didn't think that was good fortune i thought the penalty decision was unbelievable i mean i i cannot i cannot get my head around how that hasn't been given and, and looked at properly. I, I just cannot understand it. I don't buy any of the reasons I've heard for why it might not have been. I think it was a terrible, terrible decision. I would say, which Chelsea fans may disagree with me on, that in the build-up to Chelsea's goal, I thought Bowen was actually fouled, and I thought West Ham might have a little case to, to call call for a foul in the build-up to that goal. But, yeah. Sleepy, sleepy game with a ridiculous call at the end is probably the, the only way to sum it up. Yeah. And again, it's just so weird that, like, such a strong start. You think that invigorate the players, they'd want to continue doing it. You know, I would say, at least from a style play, there were there was a lot more verticality to the play. You know, Body Shield and Tiago Silva looking to break lines with passes. Obviously, Enzo Fernandez looking for, um, you know, the Benfica connection with Joao Felix. And, you know, I don't know if they're speaking Portuguese or Spanish out there, but clearly they are communicating at a high level. Um, you know, uh, also the fact that Madueke started out right and Mudrik started out left. And uh, Joao Felix showing his intelligence as a number 10, he constantly found pockets of space. I was so impressed with him. But uh, again, it just, it just fell flat. I don't know. It was just weird. You know, a lot of people talk about the Potter thing too, but I guess I'm more interested in kind of that front three in behind Havertz. Yeah, I mean, I suppose they've all come from from 
different leagues and different paces of leagues and different standards in terms of that that front three. And I suppose it's probably to be expected uh, that in the second half there would be a drop-off while they, they get used to the pace and the physicality of the Premier League. And although it wasn't a very fast match, but I think probably it would be predictable that they would drop off slightly in the second half. I thought Madawake became a little bit predictable, uh, testing in every single time, started to lose the ball a lot. Dan Felix's first half was absolutely sensational. looked like he was either going to create a score or a goal every time he got the ball. Second half, he went quiet. Mudrick, Mudrick did the understanding on the left with Cucurella is not there yet. There were quite a few times where he wanted the ball played to him. It wasn't played to him. In fairness, the other way around, I think there were probably times where Cucurella would have liked him to back a little bit more, work off the ball a bit harder, and he didn't. So there's, there's, it's going to be a work in progress. I was surprised that five of six available new signings started. I mean, that is the start half a team is a hell of a call. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily agree with it, but I suspect if Sterling had been fit, Sterling would have started instead of Madaweke. So that probably made that that call for Potter slightly. Um, but yeah, they, they looked encouraging. But I, look, we don't need to go over it again. I just don't think Kai Havertz is a number nine. Um, he he did score some offside goals, but I still would like to see a proper number nine in ahead of Dal Felix. I still think that is going to be an issue, despite how promising those three behind him look. If you've got a guy in the number nine who's, who's just not a number nine for me. So, um, you know, probably a little bit of one eye ahead to to Dortmund, although Koulibaly was sick, I believe, but he probably wouldn't have played anyways because Body Shield's not on the roster. So maybe there's a little bit of that being played. Mataweke getting minutes, whereas Raheem, you know, obviously he took a knock, but maybe those would have been made anyways. But the big conversation now is Potter. He's not Mourinho. He's not Conte. He doesn't have fight and bite, you know. I, I was thinking what I said was I, I wanted, at least in the moment, for him to play the psychological game with the referee, I think good managers squeeze the referees. Klopp has made a career out of it. They're always going to get a makeup call. And Potter just kind of let it go versus, you know, going to the fourth official and say, I'm going to chirp you until Pawson comes over. So either we can do this for a while, you can just have him come over. And I thought that was the missed opportunity. He doesn't need to go ballistic necessarily. I don't, he definitely doesn't need to get sun off, but like, making that known to the referee that like he cares and that's going to be unacceptable and he better, you know, find a way to make it right later. I thought that was the missed opportunity from him. Yeah. I mean, I, I've got two issues with it. I agree with on the, the, on the pit, he could have made a, a bigger deal of it. Um, and at least made it difficult for the officials rather than just sort of letting, letting the game go on. And I do think he's a little bit naive naive in that respect. I, I look, I, it's difficult because I do respect the fact he doesn't harangue the fourth pistol the whole game. I mean, I remember saying someone to him early when he came to Chelsea saying, it's great to see a manager who's not just counting the fourth pistol for the whole game. But I think when there's an instance where your team has been severely wrong, I think that's time probably to, to put up a fight for yourself. And also, look, it, it wouldn't probably change anything in that game, but it would at least, I think, set down a message and set down a tone for future games. I mean, nothing's really been made of that issue in the days since it. It's all been about Arsenal and Brighton, which probably arguably were worse decisions. But that's because also, certainly in Arsenal's case, Arteta shouted about it and got angry about it. And 
I do think there is, rightly or wrongly, and probably wrongly, but I do think there is a case for the fact that the teams with the managers who will make a big deal of it and will kick off about it when they really feel they're wrong probably do get slightly more decisions. And it, it is in the referees and fourth officials and far officials' minds that these guys are going to go off. And if you make it easy for them, it's easy for them not to give you decisions. And then I had my issue afterwards. And I, I felt he needed to be stronger in his comments afterwards. Um, because again, it's about setting a tone. It's about setting a message for the future that we are not going to be walked over. We are not going to just accept these things if we feel wrong. And actually, it'd be even more powerful coming from Potter because, because Potter is not a guy who normally rants and raves and normally goes mad. If he, if he does it when he really feels like it or when Chelsea have been really wronged, I actually feel it'd be more powerful because it would be all that more unusual. But I do think he needs to find that, that voice. Um, and I, I would like to see, I, don't get me wrong, I'm still, I would still count myself a, a backer of Potter. I still think he's an excellent coach. I still think he's a time at Chelsea. I still believe that he is capable of doing an excellent job at Chelsea. But there are little bits that clearly he's a bit naive about. And I also think energy from the touchline generally in that second half, I think the crowd was flat, the team went flat. And actually, if you've just got a manager who can provide some energy from the touchline, whether it be shouting at players or whether it be jumping up and down about something or just trying to convey energy. Because Chelsea have had managers before who, when the crowd have gone flat, when the game's gone flat, the manager himself has actually been able to inject energy. And I do feel that that's lacking. I, I mentioned it um, to somebody I was sitting next to also at the, at the Fulham game. I felt in the Fulham game, he could have brought some a bit more energy from himself from the touchline. And I think that's what, that would be my main criticism of Potter so far is that energy and that voice he, he, I, I believe he needs to work on otherwise I think it's going to become a quite a big issue for him yeah I think a lot of people just you know with that that managing of the game and managing of the referees you know that holistic responsibilities and things is is where you know maybe he has some growing to do and you know maybe he'll take this and kind of learn from it you know and, and hope to see because I mean well, obviously, it's huge talking points. Like, clearly, he's not going to be uh, unaware of, of everything that's going on. And, you know, he'll have to look around. Like you said, Arteta is good at, at drawing headlines and keeping the pressure on. So, um, yeah, you know, I, he's, he's, he's still fairly new at it a little bit. And he's never been at a club this big. You, you have to handle it differently. And I think that's where a lot of the criticism is coming right now. Or a lot of his quotes feel a little small club mentality, even heading into Dortmund. And then after this, it's just, he's just kind of accepting it. It's like, no, 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 no. You're, you're at the top of the football pyramid. You get to throw your weight around like Chelsea or big club. Go for it. <laughs> exactly. No, I, I totally agree. And I, I just think as well that it's a little bit of misunderstanding of the, the culture in and around Chelsea. I know they, they're talking a lot, the new ownership, about changing the culture. And I, I get that. But you're not going to change the inherent uh, culture within a lot of the fan base of Chelsea, what they've been used to, and they like people to fight for them. Yeah. Chelsea are a club who like people who like to fight, actually. Chelsea as a club have always liked to fight. And Chelsea, I think, as a, as a fan base and the culture around the club, also like to know that people are in that fight with them and fighting for them. I've actually always respected it about Chelsea. Sometimes my club, Bill, it's, it's not so much at the moment, but I've felt that times my own club have been really wishy-washy and, and and really wish that we we had a 
more fights with them. They'll still always have that. And it's always been a major strength, I feel, of them. And even as they try to change the culture, I think they certainly the, the management and the players need to respect that that actually isn't going to change. And they need to actually move more towards that. Yeah. Yeah, well said. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, though. Uh, but we're back uh, talking more about squad and some decisions, uh, as well as the new mental skills coach making an appearance. So thank you to sponsors, and we'll be right back. Well, another thing that you had tweeted about, Matt, um, is Aubameyang. I don't know if he was left out because he's trying to figure out if he wants to go to LAFC, which is rumored to be linked with him, although it sounds like he doesn't want to. Um, you tweeted that you find it odd that Aubameyang doesn't even warrant a place on the substitutes bench or in Chelsea's Champions League squad, given they're not exactly prolific, given Potter has said his application and attitude has been spot on. Maintain the fact I'd like to see him play with Felix, and you listed that he is one of the 10 top 10 best goal scorers since in the last decade. Essentially, he is number five on 201 goals in that time. So, um, Again, he's you're the youngest player on that list as well. He's the youngest player on that list if you go through it, yes. even though he's 33. Yeah. Um, yeah, most of these players are not playing really anymore. So, you know, with this, like Potter, they essentially have two rosters. They have a Champions League roster and a Premier League roster, you know, for all matters of, of the way they play it. But like you said, Aubameyang seems to be, like I said, maybe – like I said, I'm giving the benefit of the doubt. Maybe it was a lone discussion, so they left him out. But, like, again, if he's doing everything right, why not put him in the bench? Yeah, look, I, I'm a, I've tested it because I didn't want to start um, putting out messages and tweets and then and then realize there was a, a different story. And I'm confident in the fact that I'm told, absolutely sure over the weekend. There is no other story for this Aubameyang thing. There's, there's not a problem in the background with him. There, there really isn't. There's not. Uh, he's not being left out because he's in court to go to another club. Chelsea have been trying to push the LAFC thing. He's not keen at all. I can fully understand why at his stage of his career, quite frankly, he shouldn't be going anywhere near the MLS. No offense, by the way, but no, near the MLS at his stage of, of his career, given that he was banging the goals in for Barcelona, uh, you know, this time last season, basically. Um, and there is, interest from AC Milan, Barcelona, Atletico Madrid, who all made it clear that if he could have been got out in January, they would have been interested in taking him. So why he would even consider LAFC, I don't know, and I don't really think he is. Um, so literally, it's a, it's a decision, and I just I just cannot get it. If the manager is saying that this guy's application and attitude is great, great in training, and you look at his record, okay, he hasn't been great at Chelsea, but he, he did score in both games against AC Milan, which would probably, I would argue, Potter's best results and performances since he took over. And you've got to believe that the guy isn't just completely shot to pieces and is never going to score another goal again. He might not be what they want long term, but I cannot believe that you can not even warrant him a place on the substitute bench and believe really that Someone like that, Fofana, coming in from a very minor league at quite a young age, incredibly raw talent, who Chelsea were thinking about loaning out themselves in January, has got a better chance of getting you a goal in the last 10 minutes against West Ham than Aubameyang has. I just, I don't even accept it really. I don't, I don't accept it as a, as a thing. I think it's ridiculous. Um, I, everybody can argue whether he should start, whether he shouldn't start. 
whether Chelsea should try and sell him, whether Chelsea shouldn't try and sell him. But they've got him at the moment. I don't really think there's a realistic move out there for him at the moment. Use him. Use him. He doesn't have to start if you want to have a instead. But they're not scoring goals. They're, you know, they've scored one goal in the last three games or something. It's, it's, it's nonsense to me. It's absolute nonsense. I, I, I'm going to keep repeating myself. I just can't understand it. <laughs> right. I put a I put a tweet out uh, or a poll back on February 3rd about this. Once we knew that he was going to stay, you know, the transfer window was shut. You know, he didn't really have any options. And so I said, so what do we expect from Aubameyang the rest of the season? Option one was bench with some sporadic minutes. Option two was not in the match day squad at all. Option three was train with the U21s. And option four was a punt. Lots of Premier League minutes. He's going to be our PL striker. And 58% said bench plus sporadic minutes. And then 29% said not in the match day squad. So those are the top two kind of results in it. And again, I think everyone expects him to be involved, at least in some part, because why not? Like, okay, maybe he's not the long-term perfect option but now you're looking at bringing him or you know Fofana off the bench this is a results-oriented business you we got to turn the tide to your point I know you said haven't won in 13 or whatever it was it's like well at least we're unbeaten in four but we've only won one of the last five or whatever it is so like (laughs) we're not losing but we're not winning and the teams we've played we should be winning I would also argue with Aubameyang is how many since, let's say, since the just before the World Cup, it's hard to remember because the season is so weird this season and it's so broken up. But how many big chances can you remember created for him? I can remember one against Nottingham Forest when ZX crossed it and he headed it wide. Other than that, you can criticise the guy. You, you might not like his style. You might think he doesn't run around enough or he doesn't press enough. But he has not been presented with big chances. Kelsey were not creating any chances for him. I would argue that have a borderline refuse to pass to him when those two were, had played together. I mean, I, I started to wonder whether there was, I'm told there isn't, but I started to wonder whether there was something going on there because Havertz just wasn't passing to him. Um, and there were no chances created for him. And I'm not saying he's the same player, but if you create no chances for Erling Haaland, we've seen that Erling Haaland does very little for Man City until you create a chance for him. Very little. Same with Aubameyang. You have to create something for him. And now Chelsea have signed Gael Felix, who looks like the perfect player to play behind him. Actually, to create some sense for him. If he comes in, if Aubameyang comes in or comes off the bench and misses five big chances, fine. I've lost the argument. Everybody else is right. But give him a go and see see if this new setup can. You've got two two new wingers. You've got a, a guy playing the number ten who looks like he can thread the eye of a needle every time he gets the ball. Great balls through for, for people. Let's see whether they can create this dark and chances and whether that, that brings them alive. Because I don't think anyone was creating any chances for him apart from that one chance against Nottingham Forest. And if you don't create chances for him, he doesn't do a lot. We know that about Aubameyang. We've always known that about Aubameyang. That's the kind of striker he is. Yeah, which is most strikers. You, I mean, that's, that's pretty uh, universal. I think that kind of brings me to... You know, the fact of like the new signings and how quickly it looks like some of them are betting in, which, you know, I think is a little bit impressive and and goes to the recruitment uh, of these players. But when you talk about Joao Felix on the eye test, I thought he made Kai look better. I thought because of what Felix did, 
he made Kai look better, and it looks a lot more fluid with Mudrik and and Marueke on the on the wings. So to your point, I do think that Aubameyang would um, would be a much better fit in this model because before we were struggling with vertical passes and creating space. Now, I mean, once Paqueta went off and Suchak came in, West Ham they had twenty eight percent possession all match. I mean, they didn't do anything yet. We were able to open them up. And a lot of that was just Enzo Fernandez. I mean, I look at his pass maps and his heat maps, and you would think he's been playing in the Premier League. I mean, the, the seamless integration of this team, I've been so impressed by. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he just looks absolutely tailor-made for the Premier League. You know, all of his strengths and, and his energy and just everything about him, he just looks a ready-made Premier League player. I mean, he doesn't look like he needs any time to settle, albeit the exciting thing with Chelsea fans, as you'd imagine. He's also only going to get better as well. So he's, he's already set a, a high bar for himself. The, the ball in, he played for Felix, was absolutely delicious against West Ham. And if he can do, do a bit more of that as well. But he, he is a real sort of number eight, isn't he? Where he, who can play up and down the pitch and, and, and give everything for that. It's going to be interesting, really interesting, how the partnership works out there and whether possibly while Pante's out, continues to just rotate his partners, or whether somebody ends up sort of taking that place, whether that's Kovacic when he's fit, I don't know. So that will be interesting. But yeah, he, he I mean, he looks tailor-made. The others, I, uh, Dow Felix obviously has been in, incredible on the ice. Thaddeus Steel has done absolutely superbly. I mean, he's so unlucky not to be in the Champions League squad. And I, I do wonder whether that could actually become a, a slight problem for Chelsea. Uh, because he's been so good and they've been put the settled back to him and Thiago that it's not ideal having to change, change the central defensive pairing for the Dortmund game. Um, I do think the two wide guys, I think there's been flashes of really good things, but I think they're going to take some time. Like I say, Madueke, I think, is a little bit predictable. I think he's going to have to move outside as well as inside more, pick his final pass better. He's clearly very, very talented. And I think there's, there's going to be an adaption process for Mudrick in terms of his work off the ball and also just actually developing a bit of a partnership down the left, which isn't helped by the fact that Pucarella is obviously having such a tough time. And so whether that has to become feel well, but it's certainly encouraging. I can see why Potter after that West Ham game felt it was a step forward from the Fulham game. So I think there was more to be encouraged about, albeit there's still a lot of question marks as well. Yeah, I, I suppose. Well, one of the ways that Chelsea are going to try to address it is with uh, a new coach. I love this headline. So teasing. Chelsea signed new coach while everyone's like, oh, what about Potter? Gilbert Anoka, uh, Inaka? Do you? Do you? No, well, I've been saying Inaka, Gilbert Anoka, but I, I may well have that wrong. I haven't set my pronunciation of that with anybody. Right. So I'm sure everyone is aware at this point, right? So he came from the All Blacks rugby team, uh, and he was uh, with the leadership group uh, away at West Ham. Um, he's brought in, like I said, as a mental skills coach. Uh, wrote about it. What's your your take on this? I know you tweeted about it. It's a it's an initial short term consultancy basis, uh, and he's not afraid to flash a tan suit and a red tie. The man's got confidence, Matt. <laughs> yeah, I mean he he's he's famous for the no dickhead policy. You know, this great headline, this, by the way. I don't know if you wrote this, that, but <laughs> um, but that 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 is what he is famous for. And it's actually been copied by a lot of people. You know, 
Gareth Southgate with the England squad got somebody in who'd worked with the All Blacks who hadn't actually created the philosophy himself. But he talked about the No Dickhead Party. It's been all kinds of sports teams have tried to take on this policy um, and, and set this culture. But Chelsea have gone right to the top of the tree because there's been, there's been coaches who have come out the All Blacks who have given talks to and worked with quite a few football teams, England being one of them. But never the guy at the top of the tree, never Gilbert Knocker, which is why it's so impressive. They've got they've they've got the guy right at the top who set the entire culture, who actually went from being the mental skills coach in the All Blacks to becoming actually what they call manager of the All Blacks, which obviously isn't the coach, but he is he is actually his his title is manager of the entire All Blacks team now, uh, because he is in charge of what it is to be an All Black, and he is in charge of helping to decide the players that he feels and that they feel can be an All Black, and it doesn't all just come down to talent. But it's really interesting that Chelsea have gone to the top of the tree on this. I was actually initially told that he was coming in on a full-time basis, and now I, I when I checked the story before I published it, I was told, no, it's an initial short-term consultancy basis. So let's see how short-term or long-term that actually to be. He can work across all levels of the club, so it's not just first team, it's not just women's team, it's not just academy, it's staff, it's uh, leadership people, it will be Graham Potter for sure, it will be corporate as well, it, it extends that far because he also has a business um, that helps corporations with their culture and their identities, not just sports teams. So he's literally working throughout the club, but I found it really interesting that within a week of it being confirmed that he was going to do this, in actual fact, he um, he was at the game and he wanted to see with his own eyes sort of what the culture around the game was. I'm sure he was looking at Potter, I'm sure he was even looking at the way people around him acted and he would have also been, been looking on the pitch. Um, I would love, he, there's no way I'll find out, but I would love to know what he made, for instance, of the way Potter dealt with the, the penalty appeal and the comments afterwards and whether that's something that he would have an opinion on. But yeah, it's, it's a really, really interesting appointment. Um, and it shows that they're just looking for all these little percentages all over the place, these owners. Um, and the culture is something that I got Hold time and time again have been a difficulty at Chelsea since that legendary group of players had either started to leave or started to retire. I was told it was why uh, Mourinho brought Johnson back to the club, if you remember. He never saw him particularly playing an on-pitch important role, but he saw him maintaining that culture in the dressing room, which he did. They won the title. I'm told it's why Conte absolutely raved about the role John Terry played in his title winning season, even though John Terry lost his place in the team, played very, very few minutes in the end, but again, kept the culture in the dressing room. If Donership tried to do a similar thing by keeping Aspie, and I think to a certain extent that will work, but obviously that, that culture, it's, it's not really properly been there for a while now. Um, and it's, it's really, I would say, sort of good that, uh, that that's been recognised by the owners and that they're actually trying to do something about it rather than just kind of hoping something magic sticks itself out of nowhere. Yeah, which, again, I mean, 
I think makes sense. You know, I know there's been a lot of turnover on staff, you know, especially the medical department, new owners, right? New era. There's a, there's a, you know, they have to help set their edict and, you know, their, their vision, you know, and they have started to do a lot of that. Like they just announced there's new roles for Bath, Frazier and Francis as well in the Academy. I mean, they, they're making some pretty big changes or what I would say is maybe the unwritten kind of hierarchy or org structure is now just being formalized, right? Because it sounds like Neil Bath has always had a pretty big influence. Um, maybe he's just continuing that, but, um, it makes sense. I guess I just don't know what to expect from someone like this. I mean, you've definitely alluded to that it'll not just be on pitch staff and off pitch staff, but everyone around. It'll be interesting, but I guess it just goes back to the fact that Bully and Bedad are comprehensive in kind of everything going on at the club, aren't they? Yeah, it's clear that they they want to hire what they feel is, is the best in field in every single field. You know, they're not just spending that sort of 600 million on the squad that we obviously read about every day it, it goes a lot deeper than that what they're trying to do um and i actually think it's very sensible as well because because the results haven't been great let's face it it's not been a great season um there will be people i would imagine in that building who are actually slightly doubting the new culture and the new regime slightly because there will definitely be people thinking you know, where's the proof of this? Like, why why isn't it working? And so to have a guy actually to come in and help with that culture and help with that process, I think will be be really helpful in terms of hopefully getting people to trust it and getting people to, to run with it and give it time. And the, the Thiago Silva contract talks for that as well. I think a lot of the messaging around Thiago Silva's contract has been about him helping this new era, helping this new culture. He's even said it himself that he, he basically was asked to kind of stay and, and help grow the new Chelsea and and he's up for that. And yeah, all of this is about that. And I mean, a, a colleague of mine, Andy Dillon at the Sun wrote this weekend as well about the, the fact that they've hired a hamstring specialist from Leinster Rugby Club as well. Again, looking outside football for what is considered the best in class because they're clearly concerned about sort of the muscle injuries and things. Again, just a really interesting hire, not just going out and getting ex video or someone have actually gone out and tried to find a specialist in one specific part of it. Yeah, for sure. And I want to touch on that here in a second, but we're going to take our, our last ad break. So again, think of the sponsors and, and we'll be right back. So you read my mind because I'd heard rumors about this hamstring specialist and things like this. But in general, do you have much of an update on the medical department at Chelsea and kind of where they're at? I heard at one point they had like a celebrity trainer that was in there as like a physio. I'm sure they have a lot of people on consultancy or just, you know, specialists that they're going to contract out to. But um, as the team is getting healthy again, ideally we'd like to keep them healthy and, and keep them on the pitch. Do you know of any other updates? I guess it sounds like a hamstring specialist. Uh, there's a, there's a physio coming in from Man United as well. I, I forget his name, so I've got to be honest with you. I, I haven't really ever heard of him, but there's a physio coming in from Manchester United. So they're making appointments. Um, I wrote a month or so ago that they were conducting a medical, a review of the medical side of things. And I believe this is all part of it, and that is still ongoing. I don't think that is finished. As you say, after they sort of sacked some of the old medical staff and the old doctor, I think they put a lot of lot of work into the hands of sort of consultants. There was this company who are famous because they they've worked a lot with with Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters and various other celebrities. Um, but they've also that group have also worked a lot in football and rugby, 
Um, it's not like they were just celebrity sort of masseurs or something. <laughs> they, they know what they're doing. Um, but they clearly need something more permanent than that. And yet, obviously, the hamstring specialist has come in. There's a physio coming in from Manchester United. I would expect there'll be more hires. And the fact that they've got a kind of hamstring specialist suggests to me whether we see some sort of knee specialist, you know, whether we see lots of different specialists. We've seen with the recruitment staff, you know, the recruitment team is much bigger than a traditional recruitment team. They've got post sporting directors and technical director and recruitment staff underneath them. Again, they'll be looking outside the box on the medical staff. The medical staff could end up being a lot bigger than a traditional football medical staff because of this. I am told that they're even looking at the pictures because they feel that the pictures have contributed to injuries both at the training ground and Stamford Bridge. Whether that results in them being ripped up or new stuff coming in, I don't know at the moment, but I'm told that's, that's an area they've been looking carefully at and identified as a potential reason. So they're going, they're going deep into that. And obviously the amount of injuries they've had has stung them and also again made them realize that this, this is an area where we want to spend time and money and even if it's a 1% thing, you know, let's say they end up relaying Cobham pitches or something or different staff on them. Again, 1% things, but they're just looking for any little bits and bobs. Yeah, that's fascinating, especially, you know, with the pitches and things like that. You know, we've been lucky enough to be out at Cobham and they've got those hybrid pitches right now, but there's so much more that goes into it. And, you know, as I talk to people, because I'm kind of like in this athlete world in my current role, yeah. you know, um, my friends in the MLS, their, their kit men will have signs in the dressing room to say, hey, this is the pitch. This is the type of cleat we recommend. Molded today, medals for this, like to help with that. But at the end of the day, you know, some players can be like, nope, uh, I'm wearing my sixes. I'm wearing the medals every day, no matter what. And, you know, it might contribute to it. But um, I think there is a big education campaign internally to try to help the players pick the right tools for the job and some things like that. So uh, it is really fascinating the more I get to learn about it. Yeah. And if you think about it, Cobham, Cobham is getting comparatively old now. You know, Cobham, Cobham was best in class for a long time, but Cobham isn't best in class anymore. It's, it's a really good training position. Don't get me wrong, there's a lot of brilliant things still about it, but they're going to revamp Cobham slightly for sure because it got a little bit tired and it's fallen behind. Graham Potter, really interestingly, in one of his first press conferences, said that Brighton's training facilities are better than Chelsea. Um, and that's Brighton. You know, obviously Tottenham's is a lot better. Leicester have got very new facilities. They're, they're, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have thought Chelsea's are even in the top six these days, to be quite honest with you. I've looked at Stamford Bridge pitch recently, actually, and thought a couple of times, pitch doesn't look fantastic. Um, so yeah, they're, they're looking at it all. And I, I think there'll be over time, not just maybe pitches, but I think there'll be quite a lot of changes on at Cobham over time. Yeah. Huh. I mean, that's interesting and obviously important. You know, they spend most of their time there. Um, I think yeah. that even from the eye test, some of us watching the games say Stanford Bridges pitch looks a bit tired already. And, you know, yeah. we're midway through February. Um, I, I mean, I admittedly don't really know what kind of weather you guys have been through. So I know that that obviously plays a factor in it. But the fascinating thing was um, obviously the Super Bowl was yesterday. Um, the Arizona stadium, they roll the pitch completely out of the stadium, give it sun and then bring it back in because it's a mostly covered, which I would say looks like a UK football stadium. Um, yeah. you know, just to kind of like let it breathe and grow and some things like that. The technology around stadiums is insane, but 
Chelsea have a harder like setup than that. You know, like Arizona, they just rolled it out yeah. to the parking lot where they've got three square miles of cement outside the stadium. We've all been to Chelsea. It is jam-packed into that neighborhood. So yeah. anything that they do is is probably 10 times harder than, you know, a, an average project that they try to approach. Sure, for sure. It's a, it's a really difficult environment for things like that. But I'm with you. I've, I've looked at Chelsea's temperature just on the eye test and thought it looked ropey. And you got to remember it wasn't played on for, for six weeks as well. And the weather, the weather hasn't, there hasn't been any sort of really bizarre sort of odd weather. I mean, we've had cold days, we've had warmer, you know, we've had some wet days. There's not been anything that that would contribute necessarily to the pitch suddenly really suffering. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, we're going to hear lots of, I think there's going to be quite a few what I would term sort of weird and wonderful stories around what they're doing because they're going into such detail on such minutiae that some of it, when you first hear of it, will, will sound quite odd, but actually will, will probably prove to be very important. And there'll be stuff we just don't hear about as well. Yeah. Well, uh, when we're when we're over there here at the beginning of March, uh, I'll try to get as close as I can and get a, a close up for everybody oh, out there. Um, uh, all right. The other and kind of last thing I just want to touch on: Andre Santos, captain of Brazil. What you know, one qualification, just beat Uruguay, scored I think five goals in six games absolute stud from what we can see. Joe Tweeds has already predicted that he would love to see the Carne Chocomeca, Andre Santos, and Enzo Fernandez midfield at some point this season. Uh, I think you've uh, tweeted a little bit and said, hey, this is a big signing for Chelsea, ton of potential. You were looking forward to see what he does. Um, any comments on his tournament performance and the points that he's accumulating in hopes of getting a UK visa? Because I believe he was one point short earlier this year yeah I, I think they're quite hopeful um of of getting the, the work permit and visa now thanks pretty much thanks to this tournament and and thanks to the performances and the exposure around this tournament i think they'd be very disappointed stroke angry if they can't and they don't um i, I mean funny enough that's something i do actually need to check on once the jumping league's over but i i know for sure that they were quite hopeful and confident and this was before actually the Brazil had won it I'm, I'm talking maybe a week or so ago that, that I knew for sure that they were quite confident that, that once this tournament was over that they'd hopefully get that accelerated and, and get him visaed and work permits up I mean I, I think I said on the last show I know they're incredibly excited about this kid um, and they rate him up there with all the other signings you know even though he's a lot younger and not got the fee of some of them I know that they're they rate him as potentially being just as important as some of those signings long term, and they they think they've got a real, real player on his hands. I mean, I do think people have to be a little bit careful about you know let's let's play him in the Premier League every week. You know, he's still a teenager. He's not really played outside Brazil at all. He's done well, very well in a youth tournament, but it is a youth tournament, um, and he's clearly the best if, well one of the best if not the best player in that youth tournament by quite some margin so i think that you've got to be wary about just saying he, he should start playing and he should start doing this but they, they, they'll have a very careful development plan for him which may or may not involve minutes but remember now Chelsea aren't really involved in any cups you know there's not that opportunity it's a difficult time now because they've got this huge squad and actually they haven't got the opportunities that you'd normally hope for um 
I I would suspect they'll want want his visa and his work permit in place literally to help him bed in, get him over, get him used to London, get him training with the first team, maybe get him on the substitute bench, maybe a couple of minutes there. But I think the rest of the season for him, I would imagine sensibly, will be all about just get used to the place. Just get used to, we'll get used to you, you get used to us. We'll do anything we can to help you settle in. We'll give you time. And I would imagine that's what this season is about. I, it would, it, it would border on reckless just to chuck him in at, at his age and his, his stage, to be quite honest with you. Yeah, he's 18, right? Playing U20 international football. Again, has had a season at, in the Brazil Serie B with Vasco da Gama. 33 matches, eight goals, no assists, nine cautions, and a red card. Um, you know, a bit of a six profile, but clearly can go box to box. I think about this. I'm going to ask Phil. I record with Phil tomorrow, so very convenient about you know where he thinks Santos would would fit in in, in the academy side if he could. But you've got Chuck Omeka, who's been in London and is older and is not getting a lot of minutes. You've got Cassidy, who is in the Dev Squad. You've got Amari Hutchinson, who is destroying the Dev Squad. And again, like comparison of leagues and things like that. You know, I know we get excited because he is Brazilian. He just had a great tournament. But like I, my thing is like there are more established players in Eng- that have been in England a little bit longer and look at where they're at and where they're kind of looking to go. So uh, I am excited. I think we tease Tweeds a little bit because he's always excited for the next best thing coming through. But I think it just goes to show there is a lot of excitement, which uh, which which is exciting. I mean, to sign him and then for him to go out and just have the tournament of his career to really, you know, define it. Also, I mean, what I would say about that is we talk a lot about the Chelsea overpaying the players. They've done well there because they bought him before that tournament. Imagine what his fee would be after that tournament. Probably double, I would imagine. I think they picked him up for about 11 million. And I, I don't quite know how obviously that 11 million broke down in, in terms of what's paid up front and, and what's down and whatnot. But if he'd have had that tournament and not, not moved yet, then surely that price is, is, if not double, certainly. 50% more again. So we, when we talk about overpaying, they've done really well there to actually spot him. They've got ahead of the curve on that one because if he had that tournament and they haven't signed him, B, the competition would be insane and C, the, the transfer fee would be a lot higher than it is, I'd imagine. Someone deserves a lot of credit on that. I, I've got to be honest, I don't quite know which of the recruitment team to credit for that one. So let's credit them all. Yeah, fair enough. And credit to you for uh, pulling that out of your memory. I was going to transfer market real quick, and it was. It was 12.5 million euros, which in today's economy <laughs> is 11 million great <laughs> British pounds. All right, Matt. Um, anything else, I guess, that you want to plug or talk about that we missed? I feel like it's kind of a a good depth of like off-the-pitch update today. But, I mean, I want to let you bring up anything else if I missed it. I just, uh, I still worry about the outs, about where the clear outs head in. I, I think that's going to be a real issue moving forward because every every squad that Potter now names, there's going to be bigger missions from the first team, as we saw with Mason and Gallagher for the West Ham game. There will be bigger missions from the squad. Tullabally was ill, okay, but there will be bigger missions. Tullabally might not make the squads, other people, as other players come back, other players aren't going to make future squads. We know they're going to clear out players in the summer. That sort of hierarchy of who looks at the top of the clear out and who is possibly going to become a little bit clearer, I think that 
in terms of players' futures, it's going to be really interesting and, and juggling that. And obviously, the Mason contract is still an issue. It still hasn't been resolved. Um, and the longer that goes and the closer we get to the summer, the more worrying that that will become. Do we know, does he have an agent working with that? Or is he one of those guys that like just works directly with the club because he has, you know, I think, did Lampard work directly? One of those, like the old guard, they would just negotiate with the club. Yeah, lots, lots of players would. Um, I believe he says agents. I think his dad has quite a big say in, in what he does now. Um, but it's a really important contract for him. It's just that Reese same signed up pretty quick, but it's a really important contract for Reese. This is a really important contract for Mason. Um, I keep getting told it's, it's not all about the money at all. There will continue to be reports that he wants this, he's demanded that, he's turned down this, he's turned down that. I don't think at all it's all about the money. I think the contract length is probably a slight issue because obviously I'd imagine Chelsea would, lo- would be looking to put him on one of these very long terms. I think that's harder to get English players to do just because it's not not the norm and because of, they're not coming from the same background as some of the other lads. I always think that that will be harder to sign English and Premier League-based players on those kind of contracts. And then just as well, he's he's got to be... Comp- I mean, he doesn't know quite at the moment where he takes down in the squad. He doesn't quite know where Chelsea are heading at the moment. I still think that if you found Mason in a private moment and said to him, do you want to re-sign at Chelsea? He would absolutely say yes, that he wants to play his whole career at Chelsea, but things need to be right. And the problem in Chelsea is, is the closer it gets to the summer, I'd imagine in the summer, if he hasn't signed, they're going to have a decision to make. Because can, can you let him go into that final year? I'm not sure you can. Well, and then obviously other teams are going to smell blood in the water and they are going to approach him much heavier and more directly because they know the situation. Um, interesting. I don't know. You can tell me if you don't want to, but you said that he's like turned down things or he's requesting certain things. Like, do you, I mean, I, to me, that's kind of weird. Like, is it, is it like, Hey, I want to have a say on things or like be more integral? No, 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 no. Sorry. I I think maybe misunderstood. I was saying that we're going to continue to read stories about him supposedly turning down X amount of money. There's already been stories of £300,000, which I'm told just isn't true. I've said that on this show before. We're going to get more stories of what he's supposedly turned down. We're going to get more stories of supposedly what he is, in quotes, demanding or wants. Mostly it will revolve around money. But I think the decision on what's going on is much, much wider Mm. than money. Much, much wider than money. Um, But yeah, it, it doesn't feel like anything's close either way. And yet, how many months it was three, four months you just thought it needs to be resolved. Otherwise, Chelsea and the owners have got a really big, really big decision to make. From Mason's perspective, I can well see if I, you know, Mason doesn't actually need to be in a row. He might say, oh, I've got no, I'm not even thinking about leaving Chelsea and we carry on. We, we can just keep this going. But that would scare the living daylights out of Chelsea, given what they've been through with players entering the last 12 to 18 months of contract. Right. And actually, I went through it the other day. I went through it. Just, sorry, I'm, I'm probably slightly rambling, but things are coming back to me. I, I went through it the other day. I, I, I think there's about 14 or 15 first-team players who at the end of the season will be in the last two years of their contract. There's a hell of a lot. Um, and they're going to have to start working through those and deciding 
who they offer and who they don't offer to. And that will come down to the clear out as well. But there's a hell of a lot in the last two years of their contracts at the end of the season. So um, with Mason, you're kind of thinking, and, and again, it's a little weird because he's, he, 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 like you said, he's in a, a post-World Cup, you know, not having the best moment of his career, but I think the majority of fans, especially season ticket holders, and I think people have been around a little bit longer and, you know, fairly and respectfully don't follow players, but really are following the team and the club. Know that there's a lot of things that he brings to the club from a foundation, from a promotion, just from a character standpoint that you want there. He's also amazingly technically gifted and a smart player um, who's been played out of position a lot. You know, it is just kind of a weird time to be going through that because, like you said, new ownership. What is his position? New manager. It sounds like you think maybe just like a three-year contract where it gives him a little bit of flexibility if things don't go the way he wants that he can he can pivot and get out of it versus the seven and a half year, eight-year contract that they would prefer. Yeah, look, I I don't think like I said that many Premier League established Premier League players are going to want to sign seven eight-year contracts because it's just not in the culture of of what they're used to and what they're comfortable with. It's just not. Um, you'll find players willing to sign four and five-year contracts or four years with options, which is kind of a more traditional length. Um, I would imagine there's a lot of discussion around that. I would be surprised, like I said, if, if Mason would be comfortable signing sort of the rest of his career away at this stage. And that's not to say because he wants to leave Chelsea, just because players, players want to keep some sort of power and future in their own hands. It's, it's natural. Um, what I would say is I, I agree. This isn't his best season. I'm sure he would say that, but he was player of the season last season. He was definitely in the conversation for player of the season the season before that. And even when he's not playing brilliantly, I was having an argument with someone the other day. I, I go back to Fulham and Crystal Palace matches. He didn't have brilliant matches in those matches, but he still, he put one on a plate for Kai in the Fulham match that he, he couldn't convert. I think he set up a very good chance. I think it was Kai again, actually, in the Crystal Palace game. Even when he's not at his best, things happen around, around Mason. He'll, he'll create a chance to score a goal. He will do that little bit of press that wins the ball in a very sort of dangerous area that leads to something. He will come on and win the penalty like he did for England in the World Cup. Things happen around him. So, yeah, I, I just think it's a huge, huge thing, Chelsea have hanging over them and, and ideally need to sort out. All right. Well, fair. Appreciate you uh, shedding some light on that as well. Cause I know thankfully it hasn't really been out in the media, you know, of like this big distraction, but the later in the season it gets, the more it's going to be talked about and understandably so. Um, but yeah, love, love Mason. And um, you know, he'll, he'll carry us to champions league glory. I'm sure of it. So <laughs> <laughs> all right matt well appreciate you as always again make sure to check him out all of his articles just brilliant good good stuff we appreciate matt and all the insight you bring to us so um yeah we will will we talk to you one last time before we see you in person oh for sure we've definitely got another one this month for sure all right all right just checking because you know it's coming up soon so <laughs> yeah it is it's creeping up on us isn't it, it really is very excited. Uh, I haven't seen you, I think, think since pre-pandemic because I, I missed the last trip. So I am looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw you in the States. I saw you for the tour. Well, that's true, but it's different. I like to be on your side of the pond. I like to be over here. Okay, yeah. yeah. In a proper pub. Proper there pub. we go. There we go. All right, <laughs> listeners, more content coming at you this week. I know I'm doing one with Phil specifically, uh, Blue Royalty on the Women, and then uh, Famous CFC is back with an interesting one this Friday. So anyways, thanks to Matt, as always. Until next time, Chelsea fans, you know what to do. Keep the blue flag flying high.